Church, good morning. Um, I have been talking to some people that can't be in the house yet. Kids are leaving, by the way, so have a great time, kids. They're the only ones that want to get up and leave, you know. <laughs> um, no, they've got something great. But I've been talking to people who can't be in the house yet, you know, their different limitations. And uh, I say, you know, it's, uh, it's truly better. It is, no other way to put it. It's a powerful experience to be with God and God's people and uh, to take in moments like this. I'm uh, especially uh, aware this morning that there are some um, that are here that uh, are at risk of misunderstanding something that will come out in the morning. And it's something I want to address straight out of the gate uh, because it's both um, your experience and it's also in the title of my message this morning. Um, if you haven't looked at that, the title is simply Overcoming, and here's a hard word for some, uh, abuse. And uh, I want to just tell you right out front that for a lot of years, I had a uh, what I would consider an inadequate an inadequate understanding of abuse. Um, and, it, and it went kind of like this for me. I would uh, meet with somebody in my office who was clearly traumatized by something. I didn't know what, but in our conversation, I would find my way to uh, at least partial understanding of what they were going through. And as they described um, abuse, I would, I would lis listen compassionately uh, with a great deal of, of interest. And then, uh, hoping not to be noticed, I would sometimes actually uh, look for signs of abuse. And I would look for things like scratches and cuts and, um, you know, uh, uh, bruising and other forms, other injuries. Um, I didn't try to make a scene. It's not like I'm making it creepy or anything. I was just very aware of that. And, um, and I think that's an inadequate view. I was, of course, searching for some, some sign of physical abuse, whether it's in a marriage or whatever uh, relationship. And today, I've come to uh, understand and view abuse in a much broader sense. I've come to understand that it, in fact, includes things like verbal abuse and emotional abuse. Um, not uncommon sexual abuse and even uh, financial abuse. Um, and it pains me to even add this next one, but it's true. Um, and that would be spiritual abuse. Uh, believe it or not, in my library, I have a book by um, an author many years ago who described uh, that in Churches That Abuse. I thought, what is that? Do they have big ushers that beat on people? I mean, what is it, you know? And uh, we have big ushers, but none of them beat on anybody. They're the first to love you in the door. But So I, I was, I was kind of confused, you know, what is that? And I read it, and I, and I realized there are churches that abuse. I want you to hear me emphatically. This is not one of them. This church is not one of them. And uh, I know people that are here that have come from churches. They've, 
I've sometimes, with love, referred to them as refugees. They've literally run for cover from a place that mistreated them. You're not going to get that here. We're going to come as close to Jesus hugging you as we possibly can as humans. Amen? So I want you to know that. And I want you to know that if you're uh, watching and thinking about, man, i got to find, I, I can't give up on God, but boy, sh- I sure have given up on most churches. Give us a try, you know? Um, anyway, hopefully you can hear the sincerity of that. Um, I do want to say a couple more things. Abuse is, uh, I would define it this way if you want a one-sentence definition. Abuse is any behavior in which one person gains power or control over another. Doesn't matter what form it takes at all. But abuse is when one person gains power or control over another. And in every situation, abuse is not right. It's not okay. So if you're in such a relationship today and you're hearing me right now and you're just like, you know, your heart's in your throat, as they say, um, I want you to hear me now, okay? Um, uh, If you're in that relationship, or let's go further, if you know somebody that is in such a relationship, um, there's help for you. We don't just want to move right into the Bible text, and that was a You leave here thinking, well, that was a pretty intense introduction. No, it's personal for you right now, and I get that. Um, So we, um, there's help available, and um, ARMS, would you write down that initial? You probably see it in your outline at the bottom, and uh, you who are uh, live stream with us, you're seeing on your screen right now some information. I hold in my hand, it says, her journey free Um, Nationwide Abuse Recovery Groups, and it's put on by ARMS, Abuse Recovery Ministry and Services. We have a counselor from ARMS in our church, so we're that serious about this. They're trained by them. They are actually willing to create a, a recovery group right here in our church. In some cases, it may work better if you're in our church experiencing such a relationship for the anonymity that's sometimes necessary for a pathway to health, we'll find another way to get you support that you need. But um, I hold in my hand a, a, a flyer, I guess you'd say, a card, and it's uh, got great information that you can act upon. You can pick one of these up in the lobby on your way out. Online, you can pick it up a couple of ways that you're seeing on the screen right now. So. If you forget everything I just said, would you please call the church office and, um, and reach out to us, and we will, we will help you find care. And I, I think this goes without saying, but um, my lips are sealed, okay? They just are, and they always have been, and it's a Holy Spirit gift. I, I just let it go into his hands, and... Um, so you, know, you need to know that because I don't then all of a sudden look at you the rest of the time you're part of Grace Point as somebody with that issue. That's just never happened to me. And praise God for that. That's his gift. So you with me? That's a hard thing to say, but I don't want to miss stuff like this that's important. My Bible's open to Acts chapter 14, and um, I bring uh, all that I just said to your attention, as I mentioned, it's... Not only an issue that's my title, 
overcoming abuse, um, but it's also, uh, it involves a, I'm going to call it at the outset here, a risky choice that surfaces in our study here in the last uh, section of chapter 14, which is also um, the, the final finish to a long road trip for Paul and Barnabas. The first, we call it missions or missionary trip by Paul, the first of four. So Paul and Barnabas, to set the stage, have been away from home. How many of you have been away from home and you just cannot wait to get home? <laughs> That's true. I mean, every time I go to the store, I can't wait to get home. You know? <laughs> but it's true. You know, you could be away not so far away. By the way, I don't know if she's here. Millie, is, is Judy still in Romania? We love you, Judy. We love you. And I don't know if you're watching this in the middle of the night. It would be. I know, middle of the day today, so you better be at gracepointlive.com. Uh, but uh, anyway, um, we're, she's, at, she's away and she's having a blast, I'm sure. She's just loving the work God's given her to do there in Romania. But um, for her, home's going to be special. And uh, it is for anybody that's away from Paul and Barnabas had been away from home. Their time away was actually 18 months. So a long time. Um, we have a son that I haven't seen physically in three, over three years, and he's, he's stuck on an island, Australia, so don't, get, don't feel too much pity, but, um, but he, he got his doctorate there, and he is practicing there in a hospital in Perth. That's as far away from mom and dad as you can get. I'm just going to say it, um, 9,210 miles, but anyway, um, he comes home next year, Lord willing, and and it's with a one-way ticket. That's so good. So good, Trev. Baby. So um, anyway, um, uh, we come here um, to their f uh, finish of their first missionary journey. So let's read it together, and then we'll pull apart some important connections to us. It actually picks up in verse 20. This is right after a very p painful thing happened in the city that they had been in. We'll get to that in a minute. After the disciples had gathered around Paul, he got up and they went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby, which is 35 miles east of where they were in Lystra, where this thing happened. So 21, it picks up. They preached the gospel in Derby and won a large number of disciples. See that? Verse 21, chapter 14. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Notice there's a quotation before the verse ends. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, end quote, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them, in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had placed their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, that's the three Ps in my book, um, they went down to Atalia. From Atalia, they got on a boat and sailed back 
almost due east back of the upper rim of the Mediterranean there to Antioch of Syria, different Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God a year and a half earlier for the work that they had now completed. On arriving there, there's a missing piece here, the festivities, the balloons, the band, everything. They gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to whom? The Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. That's how Dr. Luke, the narrator of Acts, kind of captures the finish of this first missionary trip. Okay, you with me? Um, certain stops were glorious. I mean, let's face it, Iconium, um, their first days there, it says, many believed. You can't, you can't ask for better. You come to a new church as a pastor, and you, you hope it clicks, and there's a connection made. And then not only is there a connection, but many people are responding to Jesus. You're, you're in a pinch-me moment. I can't believe this. This is the coolest thing in the world. Why didn't I come sooner? It's all those good things. So some stops were certainly glorious on this trip, and others, to be honest, were grueling. Lystra was one of them. He was stoned and nearly killed there in Lystra. In fact, look at verse 19. We, didn't, we, we left that off. It's up the page a bit. He's in Lystra. Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra. And that scene that I'm about to read in verse 19 takes 13 words to communicate. So look at it when I read it. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. I've read that so many times, I just... I am a front seat witness to horrific abuse when I read those 13 words, and so are you. In fact, I'll go so far as to say it only takes, what was that, three seconds, five seconds, to read, and it very likely there was such abuse in people throwing stones at you intending to kill you that... Um, many permanent marks were left in that simple scene. Horrific scene. I've watched stuff in New York, so have you, uh, when it was like, like sport to come up to a total stranger. They're not watching and cold cock them across the, the face or the head. Hit them so hard, they are instantly in a fight for their life. One punch. That's abuse too, Right? So we got that going here, and it's grueling to even think about. By the way, um, when I say likely left permanent marks, I don't know if I'm just alone in this, but I don't tend to think of the apostles as having permanent marks. I think, you know, they take a licking and keep on ticking, right? They didn't need Band-Aids. It's the Holy Spirit stopped the bleeding, you know? I mean, whatever. That's how I, I, I have this view of them. They're just like other than me. But I, I'm not just guessing when I say permanent marks. And I get that from a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote 20 years 
later. He wrote this right after he got home back to to, uh, Antioch, and it's probably A.D. 47 or 8. Ten years later, or uh, excuse me, 20 years later, he's writing his last letter. He's done. Drops the pen and goes to heaven. He's writing Timothy, who was a young disciple, and he's handing off sort of the keys, if you will, or the baton, if we, we might say today, to Timothy. And then he heads home. This is what he said in chapter 3. There's only four chapters in his last letter. Chapter 3, verse 10, reads this way. You know, Timothy, about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith. These are all good things. You know all these things, my patience, my love, and my endurance. And you know, Timothy, about my persecution and sufferings. What kind of things happened to me, he says, in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? He says it there. 20 years later, he's coming back to what you and I just read. You know about that, Timothy. And you know that those incredible, impactful things I endured. He uses the word persecution again. Yet the Lord rescued me, he adds, from them all. It's one thing to be rescued out of a situation. But that doesn't equate to you or your your scars went away. This is a playful example, but one time we were out as kids in the sort of the Oakland Marina, San Francisco Bay, in a boat that was not worthy. It was a real little boat, and it was just we three boys, my brother and I and a friend whose father and him were building a dinghy in their garage. That should give you concern right there. And we, they made it. It was a, it was a fiberglass thing that, that was seaworthy until you launched it. And then we, we ignored the fact that it's leaking, and we're, we're, we're fall, this is getting down in the water, and we're way out in the middle of the bay, and... It's now underwater time. And my brother, I just have to relive this story. He had this thing about uh, moments like that. He would just start laughing hysterically because we knew how to swim. It's not like we were worried, but it was pretty choppy out there at that day. And we knew how to swim. And Ricky, our friend, also knew how to swim. But we're just having a great time. And suddenly, I mean, the waves are really big and we're, the, the boat's it's underwater. And uh, so it's, it's abandoned ship time. <laughs> and suddenly we hear this, and we look up, and it's the Coast Guard <laughs> that came to our boat, right? And um, I've never been rescued uh, before or since by the Coast Guard, but they came in this, some kind of a skipper, a schooner or whatever that has a flat place where they can just drag bodies in. They don't have to drag them over the rail on the side. So they get up to somebody, they grab my brother, and he just, <laughs> they're just having a blast laughing about it. And so that was potentially a traumatic moment, but it didn't turn out that way. In fact, I told some people recently that, and we were just howling at something that was dramatic, uh, could have gone bad, but it didn't. Paul is saying, the Lord rescued me from all of those things. I live to see another day. But that doesn't mean I wasn't scarred by it. 
He's not done. I'll quote verse 12 in 2 Timothy 3. He says, to those of us who tend to be an audience more than make it our own, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will experience what I've gone through, will be persecuted. Does that mean you're going to get stoned to death? No. Does it mean you might drown? Not necessarily. I don't know what it means. But does anybody need to define persecuted? For Christians like us to know there's probably an implication here. I want to live godly in Christ Jesus. I met Jesus in Mexico, and I've wanted to walk with him ever since. And to do so with that desire will, not may, will result in some measure of persecution in my life and your life. Um, so... Um, Back in chapter 14, all right? So we join Paul and Barnabas in Derby, the 35 miles uh, east of Lystra, where they left and just drug Paul out of town from the near-death stoning. Only a single sentence describes that ministry in verse 21. They preached the gospel in that city, Derby, one large number of disciples. What a cool statement. Good fruit and... Um, I'm here to tell you there was more. It's the only place here where we know what happened there. So if you were to flash forward, we're in the end of the first missionary journey, flash forward to the third journey, which kind of appears in covering two or three chapters, but chapter 20 and 21, um, you find, or uh, 19 and 20, you find the, uh, the name Derby mentioned again. It's kind of off the grid. It's not a big deal except this one sentence. A lot of people came to Jesus in Derby, And then in chapter 20, verse 4, we learn about a man who met Jesus on this first missionary journey. His name's Gaius, G-A-I-U-S. And in chapter 20, verse 4, which is a description of their travel in their third journey, their third mission trip, Gaius appears. Um, here's why that fact matters. Gaius met the Savior here, Paul's first journey. And then 10 years later, Gaius is described as a fellow missionary with the Apostle Paul on his third trip, his missions trip. Uh, which means he went from, let's call him a baby Christian in Derby. I'm on milk. I'm a baby. I don't know anything, but I like Jesus and I want to know him more. That happened in Derby. And then flash forward to the third missionary journey. He's not a baby any longer. He is a fellow missionary. He's part of the team. You say, how long did, what, what span of years are we talking about? Ten years. That means he went from baby to fellow missionary in a decade. One decade. 
Let me put it in terms that you'll, you'll embrace. He grew. Have you? There's a statement I want you to see with your own eyes. Would you hold your place here and go to Hebrews chapter 5? Would you? It's near the back of your Bible. It's getting real skinny at that point. Hebrews chapter 5 has a statement at the end of the chapter that I want to read. Verse 12. Though by this time, Hebrews 5 verse 12, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic truths of God all over again. You need milk again, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not accustomed or acquainted with the teachings about maturity or righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. I wonder sometimes, not with judgment, but just asking the question, my mission is to do everything I can, Colossians 1.28, everything I can in the power of the Holy Spirit to build God's people so that they will rise up and, and, and carry the torch. Okay, so that means I'm, I'm not going to give just milk. We're going deeper than that. We're getting meat. The question is, are we maturing? Okay, Gaius went from, I don't know anything. I don't know the Old Testament from the New. There wasn't no New at that, day, at that time, but you get the idea. I don't know how many books in the Bible, letters, epistles. I don't know any of that language. I don't know kings. I don't know the divided kingdom. I don't know anything in the Old Testament. But he, he, he grew. So my question is, have you, have you grown? Have, have we grown as we should? Because that's clearly the Holy Spirit's bias in all of our lives. What is he up to? He wants to make us more like Jesus and less like us. That said, the rest of verse 21 is really uh, the tough stuff. Because it's, it's, uh, it's why my title today, A Risky Choice. So they've gone to Derby, they win a bunch of people to Jesus. Then they return to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. I have read, I've blown by that and not noticed. This time I took time with maps and more maps and all kinds of calculations to see that that in fact is what I'm calling a risky choice. In fact, when I read those words, you hopefully were thinking... Or maybe you will think now, where? Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. It's not Antioch of Syria where home is. It's Antioch of Pisidia. That's middle Galatia. Um, think middle or a central Turkey today. They went where? Here's the question. Why did Paul and Barnabas choose the route they took to go home. Because Derby was it. Trip finished. Let's go home. Why did they take uh, a U-turn and head back to these places? And here's another complicator. 
Derby, where they were, was only 160 miles from home. That's in, um, in Oregon. That's it's a little past, a little before La Grande, about 100 miles before La Grande, if you go east. They were in Derby. They could have gone east. It's, it's Boardman. No one knows where Boardman is, but it's kind of cool. It's right on the Columbia River. It's a great place. Um, but it's, it's 100. Here's another one. It's Bend from here. Bend, Oregon. Okay? So they could have just simply gone to Bend. But they decide to go up to Anchorage. And down to San Francisco. And then Bend. It's that kind of about roundabout trip home. Okay, you getting it? They could have gone 160 miles, yet they decide to retrace their steps. That's what Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch are saying. They retraced their steps, which was more like 1,000 miles. And you say, hey, Pastor, what's the big deal? I've driven 1,000 miles in a day. I have too. I used to go to a Southern Cal from Salem without stopping. I didn't even use the restroom. That's a joke. That's not true. That's not true. But I had to get to school, and I always cut it close. But I was in a car, and I could go 80, uh, 65 miles an hour. <laughs> Dad, you didn't hear that. You get my, you get my point? They're on foot. What part of you is not wanting to go 160 miles and choosing instead to go at least 800, probably closer to 1,000? That's where we're at here. Um, and the harder part of that is not just how much energy that took. They went right back to the cities where tremendous abuse happened. You know, I, get, I grant you, let me just give you a possibility that you can explore. If you were to take time and go back to Acts chapter 9, when Paul met, he was Saul at that time, Jesus. At the end of meeting Jesus, Saul was supposed to go to a man and find out what God had stopped him, blinded him on the road to Damascus. And at the end, he's told he must learn how much he's to suffer. So maybe that's part of the answer, I, I grant you. You say, Pastor, well, I think one of them is Paul knew it's going to be a tough track. His whole life's going to be hard. There's gonna, he's going to face fierce opposition. So he was ready for it, and he just courageously plowed forward. Maybe so. Man, maybe that's all there is to it. But obviously, I think there's another reason. In fact... If they had taken that, um, they could have taken the 160-mile shortcut, is what I would call it, home to Antioch, uh, Syria. But instead, something in verse 22 gives me reason to believe there's more. They strengthened the disciples and encouraged them to remain true to the faith. Um, I want us to be clear about something because I know last week's a distant memory for some of us. So I want you to turn the page because you're hearing words and I, it's not fair for you to just hear me say them. Go back to chapter 13. Just flip your Bible back to chapter 13 because Antioch is the first of these three. So they were in sequence going from west to east and they're in Antioch. 
And verse 3, or, uh, this, is, this is a sort of a short summary of the traumatic assaults they encountered. He, they preached the gospel, Paul did, and a great response came, verse 44 of chapter 13. On the next day, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. At this point, if you're preaching it, you're loving it. It's like, it's like we have a great time today, and you all invite a, 10 friends, and we have no room for them next Sunday. That's cool. But look, verse 45, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what Paul was saying and do what? Heaped abuse on him. I'm not making that word up. Look down at verse 50. There's more. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and kicked them out of their region. That's all going on in Antioch. So they left. We've covered that all in past. But they left. Look over at chapter 14, and they arrive at Iconium, the second of those three cities mentioned. And look at verse 5. There was a plot. They shared the gospel, and here's the results. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to have a party for them. My Bible says to mistreat them and stone them. So you've got abuse, verbal abuse, persecution in Antioch. Here in Iconium, you have a conspiracy to do terrible things to them. And then we come to chapter, or to verse 19 of the same verse in, wow, in Lystra, they carry out that conspiracy and they, in fact, stone him what they thought to death. I have this question that we need to camp on the last time, last part of our morning. If there were places where you have been treated horribly. A home, a city, a school. My question is, would, would you ever return? Just take it in. I, it's, it's, not a, it's a rhetorical question. Would you ever return? I say it that way because I think I know a lot of people who go, no, I would never return. Let me go a step further. Wouldn't you likely have just kind of written off those places and, in some cases, the people in those places? They, they move from people you trusted to dangerous. Why? Well, it's not even a mystery. You know what they did. That's why. Aren't they dangerous and people to avoid? I have a friend who has a good heart, and with that good heart is a desire to share the gospel with anybody she meets. Recently, my friend saw a downcast stranger, and uh, true to form, she reached out a little bit and said, how you doing? With a heart to help. And they have a conversation, and 
My friend just basically shares about the love of Jesus. God so loved the world. Not a bad place to start and finish, right? And then and went on to say, you know, detecting there was hopelessness in this man. She said, you know, uh, God is the God of all hope. I don't know, she quoted Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of all hope cause you to be filled with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Who wouldn't want to say that? She did. She told him about the love of Jesus and the hope. I'm talking to some of you right now. You need that right there. But unbelievably, the man mistook the compassion of my friend and made an assaulting move on her. She told me that story, clearly shaken. Um, She rebuffed the assault and escaped. It's a real deal. Shocked at what I heard. I said, I'll bet you'll stay away from strangers, won't you? I even added, um, maybe at least avoid personal conversations with people you don't know, right? To my shock, my friend answered without thought, no. Um, she was kind. She didn't say, what kind of, what kind of counsel would that be? <laughs> she said, no. Preferring instead, as she put it, to work through the assault and courageously carry on. Wow. That sounds remarkable. And it also sounds remarkably similar to the heart of Paul and Barnabas. I don't want us to miss that what they did in those places that the abuse had happened. They went back in chat, verse 23 and it says they went back to encourage those people. Um, and verse 22 rather, to encourage them. And then we, we even know a little bit of what was their encouragement. Well, we're told they, uh, by quotations, we must, through many hardships, enter the kingdom of God. They told him, you know what we went through? Yeah, it was hard. It was terrible. But it's, it's not a surprise. It's part of how things go in the Christian life. I know I'm on an edge because some of you have been told, no, it's Disneyland without lines, you know. And then you hear something like that, and you're like, man, this is a bait and switch. I was told, you know, abundant life. Stoned to death. How do those go together? Part of their encouragement was, hey, guys, we need to, we will suffer much to enter the kingdom of God. Paul did, and so did my friend. Um, Jesus was one 
that didn't hide from that. I'm, I've always been fascinated by his life, but there's a certain... Uh, the last week of his life captures more than one-third of the entire Gospels combined in one week. And the last night of his life, a huge percentage of that. John captures the most. He covers five chapters with it, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. So all this happened in one night. And in that night, Jesus said these words to now 11 disciples because Judas had left. I'm quoting now from John 15 and John 16. Same night, same meal, same gathering time. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. He repeats the word again. That's why the world hates you. Remember that I told you that if a servant is not that a servant is not greater than his master if they persecuted me they will persecute you as well I have told you these things that in me now chapter 16 verse 33 you may have peace because in the world you will face tribulation but take courage I have overcome the world um that's some of why they went back to these cities, to find people in the churches that were walking with God, that had started a new journey with God, to not let what happened to Paul and Barnabas tip them over, cash in their chips, and walk away. That's, that's what they did. And we're told also in verse 23 that they set up leaders. There's so much on this. It's a wonderful scene. Um, he tells us that they, they, they appoint leaders, elders, in each of those churches with prayer and fasting, and they commit them to the Lord um, in whom they had put their trust. So they did that. They set up leaders. By the way, a word on leadership, they didn't vet them out. They're thoroughly vetted, but they didn't vet them out the way the world does. Popularity, uh, how big's your footprint on social media, how popular are you, how uh, handsome are you, how... How, uh, you know, wealthy are you? How powerful are you? No. It's how our world does it. But none of those things matter. Can I be that bold? When it comes to what Jesus is looking for in his church. Servants. Like Jesus. Leading his people. A list of what does matter. It's in your notes at the bottom, but 1 Timothy chapter 3, it's not surprising that those are some of the later books in the New Testament, and Paul is writing to Timothy, who would carry on, and Titus, who would carry on. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 5 to 16, and Titus chapter 1, a whole bunch of that chapter, all about what God's looking for in leaders, and he's still looking for those things in leaders today. So... Um, Finally, they commit them to the Lord, and um, that's necessary because they were leaving. And they anoint these leaders, and the leaders carry on and, and, and hopefully carry out the important tasks that they've been given. Um, I think the conviction that they had is, is uh, reflected in how they arrive home in Antioch of Syria. 
from Atalia, look at verse 26, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work, I love this label, for the work they now had completed. It's a job done. By the way, that's the biggest and I think best answer to my earlier question. Why would they make such a risky move? For all of those reasons. But driving each one of those things, setting up leaders, encouraging the brethren, driving all of that, cautioning them, don't lose faith, you're going to get the stuffing beat out of you at times. You will suffer abuse. Don't give up. Don't give up. And I think it was what was behind all that so that you too can hear him say, hey, you finished well. You, you're done with the work that you've completed that I called you to carry out. That's, that's, that's real close to the words of Jesus, well done, my good and faithful one. I have three quick takeaways I want you to hold on to. You can write these down if you, if you would. It, and, and they have to do with not just ministry things, but maybe, um, maybe your own expression of abuse. And that's this. The first, some bad eggs doesn't mean all are bad. It is so easy to conclude everybody's bad if something like what my friend went through. It's even easy to get more specific and say men are pigs. I'm tired of hearing it. I, I don't even like pork anymore. Imagine that. I'm, I don't like bacon. <laughs> I really do in my heart. But anyway, um, no, the, the truth is men are not all pigs. Neither are women. In fact, I, I'm pretty sure we're humans. What am I saying? A couple of bad eggs, the ones that abuse you, they're bad eggs. Let's, let, let's give them over to God's dealing. But that doesn't make everybody bad. And it's easy to give up on humanity if, if someone abuses you. Don't. Don't. That's just a picture of you turning dark and broken, and hiding. Please don't. Now, you're not going to be able to do it because I said, please don't. You need help. I get that. And I, that's why I started this message the way I did. And if, if you need help, ask me. I will even, if you're comfortable, introduce you to my friend. She's in our church. I will definitely introduce you and help you make a connection to arms and other resources. Second principle to take away. If you have more to do, don't leave the task before, or don't leave the task partially done. If you have more to do, you will do, you will, you will experience the word I just, I don't trust. It's the word regret. You leave before the task is done that God has given you to do, you will regret it and you will be haunted by what ifs. 
What if? Don't do that. Remember we said no longer slaves. We sang that great song. We're no longer slaves. Let's not become enslaved to what if. And thirdly, when the Holy Spirit directs you to do something, follow his lead and do it. Do it. Don't negotiate. Just do it. And please, I'm not done. If the Holy Spirit tells you on the reverse not to do something, then listen. We're going to get to that in two chapters, Acts 16, on a future um, mission and missions trip. But we're going to respond in worship now. Would you close your Bibles and open your hearts as the worship team returns? I just want to say how comforted I am that, that you have a place to go with your hurt, with your abuse, with the trauma and stuff that you have been scarred by. And to get there, you're going to need a leader. You're going to need somebody that will take you by the hand and say, I'm going to walk with you till you're whole again. Um, No longer a slave. I will lead you. There's a great song that frames that all the way my Savior leads me. I think that's what we're going to sing, right, Christy? So, um, God, thank you for leading us. In my case, from long ago in Mexico, and I'm a pastor who, who loves preaching and teaching your truth. Lead us. Lead me. Lead my brothers and sisters through whatever abuse trauma they've been through and then use them to touch others in Jesus name I just want to say a little something real quick if there's anybody in the room that has been the abuser God loves you he loves you just as much as those that are abused he loves each and every one of us no matter what we've done matter what we've come from so if you've cheated lied, stole abused he loves you just as much as he loves anybody in this room there's no separation between us and he wants to be your shepherd too psalm 23 the lord is my shepherd i have all that i need he lets me rest in green meadows he leads me beside peaceful streams he renews my strength He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid. For you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect me and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. You may stand if you'd like.